verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the debt of rec- a record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Therefore, let no one pass judgments on you in questions of food and drink with regard to the festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is God's Word. A very good morning. My name is Lak Yong, one of the pastors here. And before I begin, it's Chinese New Year. I'd like to greet you. Gong si, gong si. Yesu ai ni. And first thing first, uh, the passage is uh, for today's sermon because it's a topical sermon. So we'll be, I've been given a topic by our senior pastor on how do Christians celebrate festivals. And in light of his great wisdom, he has uh, gone on his holidays to celebrate his festivals, <laughs> which is why I'm here today. And uh, the title of today's sermon is called A Time to Celebrate. So before we begin, allow me to just pray only for myself <laughs> to come now as I've got to preach you God's Word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all this time of peace where we can open up your Word. Help us to appreciate every single moment we are alive where you can open your Word and let it transform us and to feed on it because your words are true and living and they really are the things that our soul needs. Help us to be transformed and live for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. So about a year ago, in January 2019, that's last year, my sabbatical started. And this meant that for six months, I did not have to report to work. So you can imagine, I was like a child, given a chance to get anything I wanted for Christmas. You see, because I've been, pl- I've been working non-stop for almost 19 years of my life, and I shelved many of my personal plans aside, especially since my kids came along about eight years ago. So all my hobbies were stuck in my storeroom, a bomb shelter, the HDB. And now it's finally for me to get back to my hobbies, to those things, and I made a long list of things I wanted to do. So how did it go, you may ask. See, the first few weeks of sabbatical was spent catching up on my sleep, as well as catching up with my family, and also spent time exercising and pick up, picking up my hobbies again. However, by the end of the first few weeks, I began to feel restless. My body's adrenaline levels begin to drop to a more restful state, but I begin to find myself bored, bored with my hobbies. Too much time on my hands. And I woke up each morning feeling unproductive. There's a sense of purposelessness in my life. It was like early retirement, I said that I was too young to retire. And not only that, my kids were too young for me to retire. So there was a great sense of unease in my soul. I simply did not know how to exist, what to do myself. So I kept looking at my watch, noticing how much time has been passed unproductively. Then I realized the root of my issue. Then I realized that all my life, my time has only been a marker of my productivity and security. The way I perceived time was a measurement of how much I could produce in a lifetime. And the greater my efficiency, the more deserving I am of people's love and acceptance 
and the respect. Also, there was a way, the time for me to track how much I should be earning and saving by a certain age so I could feel more secure as a person and I know how much I could provide for my family. But what does the Bible say about time? How should we perceive the concept of time? Is it just a measurement of our self-worth and security based on how much and how fast we can produce? See, as a church, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and if you recall the study on chapter 1, God created the universe in six days, and on the fourth day, on the six-day period, He created the stars, the sun, and the moon as objects in the sky for us to track time. In the first light, it says here, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. He closed his light. And ever since, mankind has been using the celestial objects to mark time. One of the earliest calendars that we found in archaeology was the one invented by the Sumerians. And they were from the ancient Near East culture, the same cultural context of the Old Testament of the Bible. See, this calendar was made about 5,000 to 6,000 years ago. And here's a picture of the star chart that they used around 3,300 BC. There's a star chart. It's not a moon cake, eh? <laughs> So by observing the stars, the movement of the stars, the sun and the moon, the Sumerians estimated that a year is about 360 days long, and it takes every lunar month, because they follow the moon, to be 30 years long. Then there'll be exactly 12 months in a year. So 360 days a year, each lunar month 30 days, and that's where you have 12 months in a year. Because they were in love with the number 12. Why 12? Because if you use your thumb to count the segments on your rest of the four fingers, you get 12 parts. You see there? So you can count one, two, three. So it's, you can count easily 12 parts using your thumb in one hand. So it's the world's first handheld computer, the Sumerian palm pilot. And so they continue to divide the day then into 12 parts and the nighttime into 12 parts. And that's how we get a 12-hour day and a 12-hour night. So over many, many years, thousands of years, many cultures built upon this system, whether it's the Babylonian and the rest of forth, and they developed their own calendars. So in short, whether you are Sumerian or Babylonian, you are Chinese or you're Jewish, it's very intuitive to use the sun and the moon to track the day and the month, and then you use the stars to track the year. So in fact, the Swiss Swatch company, Swatch, they tried to change the way we track time, and they failed. This is what they did. So 1998, the company invented what we call the Swatch Internet Time. It, when a full day is not measured by 24 hours, by 1,000 dot beats. And the idea is that the whole world is using the internet at the same time. And the whole world will have the same time, so it's easy to organize meetings because there's no more time zone. So if it's the time of at 250.bits in Switzerland, it will be the same time as at 250 in Singapore. So since there's no time zone, why? Question why? Because on the internet, in cyberspace, there is no sunrise, there is no sunset. So we might as well remove the concept of sun and the moon. But this system did not take off. 
Why? Because I believe it's always more intuitive for humans to measure time, to measure and track time with the setting of the sun and the rising of the sun. Even our body clocks react to that. We respond to the rising and setting of the sun. Because when it's nighttime, our bodies produce melatonin to help us feel sleepy so that we can rest. Unless, of course, you are trained in the Singapore Armed Forces. The moment you put on your uniform, you can have a special power. You can sleep anytime. <laughs> but I digress. But you get the point, right? Human beings are made, even in our bodies, to track time through the movement of the sun, the moon, and the stars. But there are differences in what the Bible reveals about the way God designed time and how the ancient Near East people in that time perceived time. What do I mean? The first difference is this. In the prevailing cultures of the days, they worship, they worship the sun and the moon and the stars as gods. They thought that these stars, these gods, would determine their destiny. It's like a modern-day horoscope. And so they must appease the gods. They must have festivals. And then, however, the Bible makes it very clear that the creator God that we have made the sun and the moon and the stars. They are not gods. They are just clocks in the sky. And the second difference is this. Ancient Mesopotamia, mankind was created just to serve the gods, to produce food for them and to clean their temples. And after a limited time of service, man, um, mankind, we will die. And that was how worthless human beings are in their eyes, as they so they thought to themselves. But here in Genesis, in the account here, God made all human beings of great and equal worth. We are all made in His image to be His ambassadors on earth, to rule the world on His behalf. We are all meant to live forever with God. And since we are to live forever, to have an infinite lifespan, there is no such concept where God will measure your worth based on how much you can produce in a limited lifespan because your lifespan is not limited. So instead, God gave the mankind the ability to understand the concept of time so that we can plan our time to express our great worth given by Him to us. And we express our worth by serving and loving each other in the Garden of Eden He made for us. So in other words, work was not meant to measure our productivity. It's not meant to measure our worth based on how much we can produce. Work was meant to be an expression of our worth, of being lovingly made by God. And so how to explain this? You can look at this picture here. In other words, we are not, it's not because we are productive and that's why we are loved. Instead, it's the other way around. We are loved by God and that's why we can be productive in life. It's a whole huge paradigm shift. But ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they ate a forbidden fruit and they chose to be independent from God they lost their sense of being loved by God. They lost their sense of worth at the same time. And now they have a limited lifespan. We must all die. 
And so we tell ourselves again and again that we must work hard to prove our self-worth in our limited time span. Of course, we all knew that this is a meaningless goal. It's something that we could never reach. It's like chasing after the wind. Because if we follow this path of using productivity to prove our worth, there's always a next task, and the next task, and the next task to complete. We will never be good enough for others. It will never be good enough in our own eyes. But God did not leave us in this state. In this state, so he, in Genesis 14, he said interestingly, and God said, like I read together, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be signs and for seasons and for days and years. You see, the lights in the sky are not just clocks. They don't just mark the days and the years. But they're also for signs and seasons. What kind of seasons? So the word seasons here refer to more than just a change in climate. Because in ancient East, there's only two seasons, hot or cold, right? <laughs> it's a waste of energy to have a star just for hot or cold. <laughs> so it's not just about harvesting season. And here, the root word for seasons in Hebrew is moed. And it often refers to the religious festivals and the meetings that God gave Israel through Moses. So the calendar in the sky, the Israelites will know when to celebrate the festivals. In other words, God did not create the clock in the sky to mark our productivity. He also created time on earth to tell us when to party, when to celebrate our true worth in His eyes. So let's take a look, good look at the festivals that God gave to Israel. So firstly, you must understand that the nation of Israel, they were once slaves in Egypt. A quick recap. They were nobodies, doing all the hard labor, paid very little. And the eyes of the employers, the Egyptians, they were breeding like cockroaches. So the Pharaoh even ordered the killing of the baby boys to curb the population growth. But by his grace, God rescued this group of slaves, this group of foreign workers, who were descendants of Abraham. And not only because they were descendants of Abraham, First thing first, you need to know the Israelites were not more righteous than anybody around them. They were not more significant either. In fact, they were just as sinful and just as undeserving of being saved as everyone else. But God rescued them from slavery by grace. And then He gave them His laws so that they could be a shining light to the other nations. And part of all these laws He gave them are festivals, when to celebrate, and what to do at the celebration. In the book of Leviticus, God gave the instructions to worship Him through Moses, and it's what He said. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Notice how the Lord called all the festivals feasts. Except for the Day of Atonement where you fast, every other festival is a feast, it's a party. So unlike what many people think, actually God is not a party pooper. Our Creator God holds the greatest parties on earth. Let me explain. The first festival, Sabbath, every seven days, once a week, Israelites are to stop working, just like how God rested after creating the world in six days. So Israel could party once a week. 
That is unheard of. The whole nation, once a week, will put down all their tools and there's quiet in the land. The only thing, the closest thing we could experience in Singapore is the Chinese New Year. And for two days in a year, all the shops and offices were closed for business and you start eating all your instant noodles at home. <laughs> because that's what we do, right? Only two days a year. But for Israel, can you imagine every week, once a week, it's a Chinese New Year shutdown. And then linking to the festival of the Sabbath year. The Sabbath, once every seven days. You have the Sabbath year, once every seven years. Then the land must be allowed to rest. Jurong Island must shut down. No one was allowed to plant the fields, not even the animals or servants or foreigners. The people were called to trust God, who somehow the land would still produce enough wild fruits. And that's where we get the idea of the sabbatical for pastors. Praise God. <laughs> because we had to stop working and rest and trust that God will still do His work. And then finally, seven times seven years, which is our TT Institute, and the 49th year after seven sabbaticals, they add one more year, the 50th year, which is the Jubilee year. And like the Sabbath year, it's an extra one more year when no work was allowed to be done. That's two years in a row. So God also promised that on a Jubilee year, He'll give such a bountiful harvest before that you can celebrate for two years without working. You now, when Singapore has SG50, you can still remember? What did the government give you? A few hundred dollars and then some tax rebates and they threw a big party. But for Israel Jubilee, you get two years of paid leave. Wow. <laughs> Tanguku. <laughs> That's Old Testament, now New Testament, sorry. <laughs> See, all the debts also, they're old. They were cancelled during the Jubilee year. Slaves will be set free. Because why? This will prevent those who have become poor to remain poor forever. They can, in the Jubilee year, get back to the ancestral land. And then the rich one that access wealth, they must return. It's like playing the game of Monopoly. But on the 50th round, ding, 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 reset button. Everybody return the money to the bank. <laughs> return all the properties they have purchased. So the excess wealth of the rich will be removed and the poor no longer destitute. So if you get a drift here, the Sabbath and the related festivals were made to teach Israel one thing. They were dearly loved by God and the worth is not because of how successful they are they get in life. Because whatever excess wealth you get, you'll be taken away. Whatever debt you have, or whatever loss you have made, you'll be restored to you. And every 50th year, Israel has this great experience that they are loved by God unconditionally, not because of their productivity. He chose them by grace. So the sun, the moon, and the stars were created by God to mark the seasons and the festivals, to remind them of this great truth. It's the same for the following six other festivals. Can you have a slide? So we have seen the Sabbath. The next one is the Passover. Let's pause there. The Passover takes place generally in spring. It's the new year for the Israeli calendar, the first month. And then they have seven days of feast on unleavened bread. It's equivalent to our Easter. And the meaning of it is salvation. And the Passover lamb was sacrificed died on their behalf 
to pay for their sins so they can be rescued out of Israel. I'm sorry, out of Egypt. And no yeast must be found in the bread because yeast represents sin. And the next festival is the first fruits. It's the 16th day of the first month, about two days after the Passover feast. And it's a barley harvest. And here it's about trusting in God's provision. Everything they have, they have to return to God as an expression. Then you have a festival of the weeks. And that's 50 days after, the giving, uh, after they cross the Red Sea, they are given the law. And that's equivalent to the Pentecost. And then a feast of the trumpets where they are summoned together around the tabernacle and to worship God. And the next one is a day of atonement. And they have to remember that the life has been paid for. And the last one is the festival of the booths of tabernacles. And here, they have a whole time period here. They must live in tents. It's like a major church camp. I said it's not five-star hotel, but in camps. And to remember God's guidance of Israel through the wilderness. So if you had to arrange the festivals in a year, this is how it looks like in the calendar. Can you see here? So the months over there, you begin the first year in Nisan, number one, and you celebrate all the way, and halfway through the year for another season, you celebrate as well. And by this time, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with Chinese New Year? Okay, let us be patient. We'll go through this and see what the Bible says about festivals. You see, the sad truth is that the nation of Israel, they failed to keep the festivals given by God. She did not keep her Sabbaths. She, when, when she celebrated her festivals, she gave offerings to Yahweh, the God of Israel. At the same time, she also participated in the festivals, the rituals of worshipping Baal, the other gods. Israel was like an unfaithful wife. She went to look for other lovers despite her husband being faithful to her. So as mentioned, these festivals were created by Yahweh, the Creator God, as a declaration of His faithful love to them, that He will always protect them and provide for them. And all she must do is just to celebrate, don't do work. But they can't. They can't. They have to do some work. They went to the festival of the Baals and the other God, where they must perform some sort of ritual, some religious techniques to prove their worth. And somehow these gods then might bless them and answer their prayers and give them what they want. It's interesting, isn't it? Here you have a good boss who say you don't have to work for it, and here you prefer to work for a very difficult boss, sacrificing your days and nights just for the tiny hope that maybe you might get a promotion or you might not. So the billion-dollar question we ask is, why? Why is Israel so foolish not to trust in a God of holidays, but to trust in a God of, of works? It doesn't make sense. Why did the people prefer to work hard to win the love of the gods? Why didn't they just rest and enjoy? The reason is that there is something broken in our hearts. We just cannot trust in God's love for us. We just must do something to prove our worth. We need to double confirm to get all the blessings. Right? We must be double-minded, both follow both Yahweh and follow Baal. And so Israel was two-timing. It's like an unfaithful wife who caused great pain to husband. Israel broke God's heart. She ran to the arms of Baal. 
and her festivals, her celebrations became empty shell of going through the motion. So you see, my friends, the festivals in and of themselves, they cannot save us. The festivals are only a sign. They point us to God's love. The festivals, it's what we call the proverbial finger pointing to the moon. It's not the moon, it's just the finger. Or they're like the plastic food, you know the food replicas that you see outside Japanese restaurant? This plastic food that you see will tell you what you should expect in the restaurant. But you don't eat them, right? While queuing up, you don't take the plastic food. They are not the real substance. And the best expression of God's love then is His Son, Jesus Christ. See, at the Last Supper, Jesus' disciples were quarreling among themselves over what? To see what rank they will hold in God's kingdom when Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. They were more interested to build their self-worth based on the position they hold in society and then based on the position they hold in church. They were so insecure. But what did Jesus do? At the Last Supper, Jesus knew his worth. He knew he was greatly loved by God the Father. And so Jesus, the Son of God, took his time, bent down and washed the feet of his sinful disciples, each and every one of them. And he declared his love for them and commanded them to love one another. And later on, after the supper, Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and went to the cross to die. And then the slide says, For while we're still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For no one, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare even die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the cross, God is saying that, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of your sins. You think that you're a failure. You think you're weak, that you're unworthy. That's what the world tells you. That you're not good enough. But here on the cross, precisely you're not good enough. My son died for you. Will you finally accept my grace and my love for you? And so Jesus became the best expression of God's love. And he has already come. He served us by going to the cross and he became the Passover lamb. Then he made atonement for us to pay for our sins. And he set us free from our debt to God and to men and his, therefore he's our jubilee. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he's the festival of first fruit. He's the first man to rise from the dead. And 50 days after the cross and the Feast of Weeks, he sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts to change us so that we can trust in God. And then now He continues to guide us as we journey in this life. Because as we journey in our earthly tents, our bodies, our earthly tabernacles, Christ is still with us until we're summoned to stand before Him at the second coming when the festival of trumpets sound once more. All the festivals given by God point to Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote, in Colossians, he said, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, 
but the substance belongs to Christ. See, the festivals point to Christ. They're the shadow of things to come. They're not the real stuff. Jesus is the real thing. And since Christ is a substance, the festivals are a shadow, then those who know Jesus who are in Christ, there is no more need for you to celebrate these Jewish festivals. You understand? No more need because they are the plastic food when the real food has come. So the question is, how do we then celebrate our traditional Gentile festivals? So I think the first thing first is we must see that these festivals that we have passed down from our forefathers who are not Jews, they too cannot save us. You must remember that. They can't save you. Don't celebrate as if if you miss it, you will die. They can't save you. But because they can be a very important part of our lives, what do we do with them? If we just remove them. So I know an old lady, she lost her husband in the month of June, at one year, and being a traditional Chinese, she did not allow herself to participate in the coming Chinese New Year. Why? Because she was afraid that she would bring bad luck to her relatives. But when the New Year drew nearer, there was such a vacuum in her heart that she suffered from panic attacks until she could bear it no longer that she participated in the celebrations. She broke free from her tradition. And interestingly, the more pineapple touch she ate, her anxiety attacks went away. <laughs> no, because it's the emptiness of a heart, isn't it? You can't just remove that festival from a person. Because for Christians who grew, and for us who grew up in very strong traditional cultural practices, just because you're a Christian, you just can't drop your festivals like this. Because they're so such a big part of your familiar life and love. At the same time, we also have non-Christian relatives. And when they look at us as Christians, when we don't celebrate Chinese New Year, for example, they will think that we've abandoned our Chinese roots. We have become westernized. So we're stumbling them. Why? Because Jesus never asked us to abandon our cultural roots. He only asked you to abandon your sinful lives and trust in His grace. That's all He wanted. So what is the wise thing then for us to do? One way then is for us to analyse our Gentile festivals and to see how we can infuse Christian meaning into it. Now you may be uncomfortable, but you think about it. There's nothing wrong with this. Even in our Chinese practices like Chinese New Year, the meaning and the styles of Chinese New Year have changed over time. Really over time, if you trace back history. And in different parts of China, they celebrate differently. So the meaning is more important. And we need to change our meaning to adapt to the culture that we live in. At the same time, now we are in Christ, we can infuse the Christian meaning into it so we can celebrate with integrity and then we can redeem these festivals as they point to Christ. So this gets a bit technical. So while my wife and I were trained in Bible college, one of the things we learned in our intercultural studies was to how do you analyse and redeem a culture? And one tool was given to us, it's very helpful, it's, called a, it's a quadrant. Let me show you here, a time for you to use your brain in Chinese New Year. So the quadrant has form on the x-axis and meaning on the y-axis. And so you have four boxes here. So depending on where you are found, right, which practice and analyze. Some things can be in, for example, your negative form and positive meaning, which means that it can, it's a very negative meaning to whatever is being done, but 
a negative form, but actually can have a positive meaning. What do I mean? And you get to look through the Bible. For example, Chinese ancestral worship. So while the Chinese have the good value of remembering our ancestors, it's positive in meaning. They also pray to them for protection and blessings by bowing in front of the ancestral tablets. And that is negative in form, according to the Bible. So one possible way then for such a box, what you do is you remove the negative form, but you continue to reinforce the positive meaning. So you can remove the spiritual connotation, you don't bow down, but you retain the filial piety. Because it's a very good thing for us that instead of praying to our ancestors, we can recall their lives. We recall the kindness that they have shown us. And we remember, we remember the real stories we tell to one another about our forefathers. And this is especially useful if you, for example, you have a forefather who also was a Christian in ancient China. And then we can point to how God's love and faithfulness in the lives of our forefathers. The positive form and a negative meaning. Here, like Chinese New Year, uh, positive form, positive meaning, Chinese New Year decorations. In itself, the decoration you put in a house is positive. But how do you improve the decorations, you can put Christian meaning to it. So I'm sure some of you have seen this over Facebook. So you can use this paper cuttings and write Christian verses in them. There's nothing wrong in that. You can retain that practice. The next one, negative form, negative meaning. And this is, for example, you go to the temple in Chinese New Year to present offerings to deities and spirits. This is clearly negative in the form and it's negative in meaning. You can't redeem it. Understand? You cannot put a cross in a Chinese temple and say we go and bye-bye together. No, no. Okay? <laughs> so you just have to reject this practice completely. You don't do it. Okay? And then the next slide, this one is negative, positive form and negative meaning. Here, what do I mean? For example, like giving an ampaus. Giving an ampaus is actually positive in form, but if you think carefully, the meaning can be negative. Why? Because when we give the red packets, we must say some sort of words of blessing, right? And then we wish the other person all the success in this life. But if we're not careful, the way we do it, it becomes superstitious. It's like we believe we Chinese eh, got this superpower, you know, that whatever I say, eh, the good one will definitely happen. Right? We, we believe we have these things that our words can control over the universe. And that's where it's wrong. Right? So we have to change it. So how do we change it? So when we give the red packets, we can actually remind each other of God's love and mercy. Look back to your past year. It was a good year. God was there for you. And then we can by remembering God's kindness that will follow us every day of our lives. Okay? So these are the some examples of redeeming Chinese New Year practices. But what about the entire festival? How do we redeem the meaning of the Chinese New Year? The next table. So firstly, you need to know the origin of Chinese New Year, right? So the myth, the mythology says is there was once a monk he used a red string to tame the monster called Nian, and the monster was destroying the village and menacing the city. And so by tying the red string there, he pacified the monster and brought peace to the land. But the Jewish equivalent is actually the Passover, isn't it? The first month of a year, you have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and that red blood brought peace to us. We were spared of destruction. And the Christian meaning is the red that when we give can remind each other of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Nothing wrong with red. Nothing wrong to wear red on Chinese New Year. Understand? The next one. So, the reunion dinner. 
is to celebrate family reunion. Very positive, right? Except that the food you eat, high collagen, high cholesterol. <laughs> so the Jewish equivalent is a Passover feast, as they remind each other of that. But for us Christians, we remember the Last Supper. That was the Passover feast that Jesus did for us, the Last Supper. And then we can remember how He saved us, how He served us by washing our feet. Then finally, over the Chinese reunion dinner, if you remember that, you can finally love each other the way Christ loved us. Okay, next. And the first six days, according to the legend, the, this Chinese goddess called Nuwa, half woman, half snake, sounds like Noah, after stopping the flood, I'm not kidding, so after stopping the flood, she felt lonely. So she created creatures. The first day, she created chicken, second day, dog, third day, pig, and sheep, ox and horse, everything the Chinese can eat when. Okay. So she created all these animals, and then this, this whole six days is a pioneer which you go around and visit your relatives, right? And you wish them, bless them. But if you think about it, the Jewish equivalent is a six days of creation that we went through in Genesis. And we replace it with Christian meaning is remembering God's grace to our ancestors and our family I mentioned just now as you go around visiting your relatives. Remind each other, trust in God. And you know why? One of the painful things that we do this pioneer is what I call the three hows. The first one is how lian. <laughs> There's always an uncle or auntie who's always boasting how lian in Hokkien. They will speak out of their own insecurity. So they begin by saying, no, I want to say, eh? but I, a lot of people think I'm actually very good. <laughs> Not to say I'm good, lah, but I do my best. You know? So they continue with Then they look at it, I, I'm very good, eh? correct wrong. Eh? And they go on and on, they boast about themselves. And then you sit there and just endure the bragging, right? And then you look down at the Yo's packet drink. Uh, you know? <laughs> then the other suffering you have called uh, the next one, how come? Yeah? This, this auntie will come in, ah girl, so pretty. Uh. How come she's not married? How come? Ayo. <laughs> very choosy, lah. how come? Right? They look, ah boy. You study very clever, right? How come, how much you earn now? Huh? So little. How come? You know, no girl marry you, no? And then you go on and on, right? This is a Chinese inquisition, right? And then the only way you can struggle is you keep your mouth with full of pineapple tarts because you just keep eating. Right? Don't need to answer them. No? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't need to answer them. So, then the last one, uh, the last one is the how long more, oh Lord? <laughs> These are those who will not stop and nagging, no? They will share with you all the secret techniques to succeed in life. They tell you how to lose weight. Uh, last year keto, this year don't know. Yeah. Then they share with you how to succeed, uh, how to have a sharper nose, uh, or what, how you can get to the right schools for your children. And then for me, I, every year I get tips on how to cut my hair and comb my hair. <laughs> I have long given up convincing people that I have natural curly hair. <laughs> so to the naggers, uh, you know, they're just sharing, right? they're sharing and sharing. They, but they have no idea they're offending people. The truth is, when they speak, they all speak out of their fears and insecurity. So whether it's Uncle Haolin, Auntie How Come, or Ama How Long, eh? one thing we all have to do for sure is we must forgive them first and then pray for them. Every night you come home, don't just open your ampau. Every night you bless your heart for them. Pray. Keep no records of wrongs. Love your enemies, just as how your Father in Heaven loves you. 
and pray that they will get to know Jesus. God put you in the precise time and place to live and work so that you can come to know God and so does your loved ones. Pray for them because only Christ can give them the true worth, can quench their fears and satisfy their thirst. And so as we continue on the seventh day, the Chinese, we have quite a renru. Renru is the, the day of man because they believe on the seventh day, man was made. A plus minus one hour, uh, one day difference. And here, actually the Jewish equivalent is the Sabbath day. God made man on the sixth day, on the seventh day, he invited us to enter into rest with him. So how can we replace the Christian meeting? Is we can talk about how Jesus is the son of man. The real, real we celebrate the best man, literally, the son of man. And he is our true Sabbath, our true jubilee. And on that day, we can forgive and bless our enemies, set them free, and also remember the poor. What do you do with your excess unbows? How can you be generous? And next thing, last one, on the 15th day is a yuan xiao, which is the first full moon. It's when you're eating the tang, you know, your, your glutinous rice balls, for family harmony. It's all about your reunion. And in the Jewish equivalent, the 14th day is the Passover, and the 16th day is the first fruit. For Christian, it's about Jesus' death and resurrection, bringing forth a new humanity, a new family. The 15th day, you can remember, be thankful for your brothers and sisters in Christ that God has given you. Don't bicker among yourselves. You can have communion, you can have harmony of a new humanity that we all yearn for. Okay? And so this table, off the slide, is just a suggestion. But the key is, when we recognize the hopes and desires behind the Chinese New Year practices, then we can see how Jesus fulfills our desires and that the festival is actually pointing to Him from our hearts. So maybe Chinese New Year wouldn't be so painful after all when we practice in a way that we can point to Christ and can redeem it by remembering God's grace for us and how He can draw us closer to Him. So in summary, the festivals... Jewish festivals in the Bible cannot save you. They point to Jesus as a fulfillment. And now that you're in Christ, you may choose or choose not to celebrate them. You're free. The Gentile festivals cannot save you. And now that you're in Christ, you can choose or not choose to celebrate them. You don't condemn a brother because he doesn't celebrate Chinese New Year. But if you celebrate them, use them to point to Jesus as their fulfillment. That is the key to know His grace once more through the festivals. So now I'm going back to my sabbatical last year where I celebrated my six-month-long festival of Sabbath. So I asked myself in my unproductive time, what is one thing I hope to achieve through all this? And I wrote down in my planner to know God's grace once again. So I prayed to God about this and He answered my prayers. He gave me many mornings to reflect on my salvation and my walk with Him. And many mornings in cafes, either by myself writing down my diary, my thoughts, or I spent time with my wife where we read the Bible together. It was very rare, whole six months, you can do that. And then I had to process my feelings, my fears, and my past hurts. I prayed to God to repent of the idols in my life. I have time to reflect upon myself and to forgive those I need to forgive. It was my time of jubilee. And then near the end of my sabbatical, my family and I spent a month with her sister 
uh, my wife's sister in Canada. And my in-laws there, they brought us along to a lunch meeting. Why did a meeting? Uh, the person who sold them an old sailboat. Life is good there. So they were sitting at one end of a table, and I was sitting on the other end of the table, because they're talking business, right? And then the man who sold the boat, he came over to my side of the table. And then he told me, he heard from my in-laws that I was a pastor. Then he said, I have been a pastor too. He said, I was a pastor too. And now he's retired, and he spent his time teaching people how to sail. Now, when he talked about sailing, you could see his eyes shining brightly. And then when he talked about how God brought him from South Africa to Canada, where he and a few friends planted a small church of over 100 people, when he talked about Christian ministry, his eyes shone brighter. Then I shared with him how I have previously wanted to become a monk. Yes, I have a problem with celibacy. But when I heard about God's grace, there was no turning back. I changed from a God-hater to one who loved Jesus. And at this point, you can see his eyes shone even brighter. Grace, he whispered. And then he said, with so much amazement in his voice. See, after all these years, I could never fully grasp how God could show us so much grace. My friends, the grace of God is like the ocean. You can never drain it dry. That's how my sabbatical ended. I thank God for He answered my prayer to know His grace again. And if you pray, and if you ask God to help you understand His love and His grace once more, He will surely answer because we are meant to live by grace from the moment we are born. And we are meant to live by grace from the moment you are born again. Until we see Jesus face to face at His second coming, then in heaven, we'll be spending time, eternity, to share stories of God's grace in our lives, in our family lives, in our forefathers' lives. And so in our individual lives, let every day, every day be a good day to remember God's grace for us. And in our collective lives as a people, let every festival we celebrate be a time we remember His grace towards us as a family. Festivals on earth are for us to rehearse what will happen in heaven. And that's how Christians celebrate our festivals. Let us go to God in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, may you teach us how to not work for our worth, but to see our worth at the cross of Jesus where he died for us. And I pray too that you may grant us strength with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the power, together with all the God's holy people, to grasp how wide, how long, how high and how deep is the love of Christ for us, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, so that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We ask all this in Jesus' most mighty name. And the church says, Amen.